Thank you, Adam. It is a blessing to have a couple new younger elders coming out. I won't be the youngest guy at the table anymore. So, uh, yeah, Mark, we're looking forward to having you up here one of these days. Uh, so we are, we are in Ruth chapter 3, as Adam mentioned. So you can turn to that. It's page 223 in the Pew Bible. We've been going through Ruth and looking at different aspects of love in the book of Ruth. And this week, we're going to be talking about love's candor. There's no beating around the bush in today's passage. Love is direct. So last week, I shared about how Jen's friend Aaron selflessly moved towards me at a speaking event and told me about her friend. And so I waited about a month, and I prayed, should I pursue this? I hadn't been dating. And I felt clear to, to go ahead and pursue it. So I, I got in touch with her. Our first phone call lasted two hours. And we set up you know, a casual Wednesday night dinner that was amazing. And I drove away from there wondering, God, is this the woman you have for me? And so we had made plans that we would have a, a nicer, more significant date on a Saturday night two weeks out, because I had a speaking event the next weekend. And we were talking on the phone and such in between, and I found out that she had Friday off. She was a school teacher. I can't remember what the holiday was, but she had Friday off, and I was going to be traveling, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to leave work early that day, and I will go for a walk, because I was just excited about this budding romance. So I kind of shoehorned in what will be forever known as the crazy date. We went on a walk in Wissahickon Valley over outside of Chestnut Hill, if you're familiar with that area. And I didn't really know the trails that well. So we got all turned around. And we were both really in our heads. Jennifer was thinking, I'm on a date with a widower with two kids. And I was thinking, could this woman be my best friend? So, you know, no pressure for a second date. Uh, it did not go well. It was a disaster. And so I, I walked away from that just thinking, that's it. I'm done. I've tried to force relationships before. If it's not working, it's not working. Just walk away. And the lingering thing was we had made this plan for, for the next weekend. And so I, I prayed about it, and I really felt like God was saying, you need to do this. You need to follow through. But in order for you to grow to become the man that I've created you to be, you need to have the conversation. You need to, to address what happened there. And so we got together, on, and we actually had a wonderful time on Saturday afternoon. God dashed my plans. It's too long of a story to get into. But we had a wonderful afternoon together, and we went out to a very nice dinner. And, and so finally when we're at dinner, I brought it up. The awkward moment of, hey, can we talk about what was going on there? Um, I would say God used that directness and then our corresponding honesty, both of us being able to put on the table, hey, this is what was going on in my heart when we were on this, this crazy date, uh, to really solidify the relationship and to draw us closer. Love needs to be direct. It needs to be honest. Um, if you are here and you're investigating the Christian faith, uh, we're going to read a, a, a portion of scripture in a moment here, and it's telling a story. You're coming in in the stream of, of a sermon. We have one last one uh, next week to, to wrap up the story. 
But what, what we've been seeing in the background of this book is that God is at work. That the real love story in the book of Ruth is a God who loves you so much that he was willing to set aside everything to pursue you and to chase you down. And so that is what I am ultimately hoping you will see. Please, please join me in reading Ruth 3. That's again on page 223. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at... Three points from this passage as an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to look at first the plan that Naomi's come up with. Then we're going to talk about the proposal that Ruth engages in. And finally, the provision of Boaz. And you'll have noticed with these three scenes, they're corresponding with three different times of day. So there's late afternoon and then midnight and then early morning, which are significant in the story. So last week's passage ended with Ruth having had a change of heart. We talked about how Hesed love, sacrificial love, transformed the heart of Ruth. So she went from 
being someone who was angry and embittered at the end of chapter 1 to someone who was praising God and rejoicing in his provision at the end of chapter 2. And the encouragement was for Ruth to stay close to Boaz's workers. And it says at the end of chapter 2 that she stayed with them until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. So that's about seven or eight weeks. So it's been a couple months have gone by to where we are today in, in today's passage. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. And, and you need to see this. In her plan, she has good intentions for her daughter-in-law. So it's late afternoon. Naomi has probably finished another day in the fields. She's come in. And Naomi somehow has heard the buzz around town. The guys are all going to be at the threshing floor tonight. And Boaz himself will be there. And so here's, here's a picture of a threshing floor. So you can have some idea of what they're talking about. It was usually a, a large flat stone area. Sometimes it can be put together like in this picture where flat stones are laid out. But the grain would be heaped in the middle. And then they would take a sledge, like you see in the bottom there, and it would be pulled by oxen. And it would go over the stalks repeatedly, around and around, crushing everything. And then they would take pitchforks and toss it in the air, and all the heavy grain that had been broken off the stalks and out of the hulls from the grain would fall to the ground, and everything else would get blown away. That's the chaff. And, and some of you know, in like Psalm 1, you get pictures of, of chaff being blown away. Uh, so that's... That's what's going on. It was a community activity. Everybody was gathering together to do this. So Naomi had good intentions in all of this. And, and I just want to point out, this is, this is a significant shift from her, from that bitterness that we saw at the end of, of chapter 1. She's thinking about Ruth, and she's desiring blessing on her future. And, and you need to see this, and, and I suspect you have observed this, and maybe yourself or in other people, that bitterness and self-pity drives us inward, into self-absorption, cutting off relationships with other people. Um, and in contrast, repentance, like we saw in Naomi, moves you towards people. When you have a heart that acknowledges God, that has praise for him, it moves you towards people. So how, how are you responding to life's challenges that you're facing? Are you turning inward or are you moving outward toward people? How are you responding to God? Like, like Naomi, it requires a work of grace in your heart in order to be able to move towards him and to move towards others. So she tells herself, you saw in the passage, clean yourself up, put on some perfume, change your clothes. Uh, most scholars believe that that last point was take off the black dress. You know, we don't do that that much in, the, in our culture, but for, for a long time in world history and all kinds of cultures, widows would dress in black, right? Well, she's saying, put aside those mourning clothes, put on something else. Uh, okay. So far, so good. Um, but then the scheme gets a little harebrained here. And, and Naomi starts veering towards unwise counsel. Uh, one, one commentator referred to this as the Machiavellian schemes of a matchmaking mother-in-law. <laughs> so, so think about this. Naomi is urging Ruth, go by yourself at night to the threshing floor. 
where these men, it's all men that are there, have been, yes, working, but also eating and drinking. There's been a party. It's the end of the harvest. Go there secretly and then lie down at Boaz's feet. Um, we saw in last week's chapter that both Boaz and, and Naomi warn her, hey, stay on his field because you know what? You could get assaulted if you go somewhere else. You could be sexually assaulted. We, we've seen before, these were lawless times in Israel. So last chapter, Boaz and Naomi are both worried that Ruth could be assaulted in broad daylight in the middle of a field with a bunch of people around. And now Naomi's saying, hey, why don't you sneak down there at night where they're all partying? It's a little bit, so we've got two uh, older girls that are in college. It's a little bit like me saying, oh, there's that boy you like in, in your class, and he's in a fraternity? Well, do this. Go to the fraternity party. Don't let him know you're there. Once all the booze is gone and everybody's going home, watch what room he goes to and follow him up there. That is the craziest advice any parent could give their daughter. <laughs> but that's essentially what, what Naomi is saying. So she's got a crazy scheme going on here. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing is, is a little return to how Naomi used to think. We talked about that, uh, that she was very pragmatic. That's why they left the promised land and went to Moab. Um, but there's something else I want you to see before we get into that. Her plan involves sneaking around. And, and I just want to make a quick application. Anytime there is sneaking going on in your life, it is pointing to sin. Sneaking is a result of, of guilt and shame. You know you're doing something you're not supposed to do. That's why you're sneaking. One of my professors, Ed Welch, at, at Westminster Seminary, uh, this was the early days of social media, would tell his class, hey, if you want to go on Facebook in the middle of class, that's fine. Like, it's your tuition money. You want to go on Facebook, that's cool. If you minimize the screen as I'm walking around the class, that's called sin. Right? When you start sneaking and hiding what you're doing. Um, so I just want to ask you to pay attention to where you sneak. For some of you, it might be food or alcohol, or spending, how you spend your money. Um, I want to challenge you with this. Sneaking always will point you to a God replacement in your life. You're going somewhere else instead of to him. Okay, so it's, it's not exactly clear what Naomi thinks is going to happen well, you need to realize this. This language is, is profoundly sensual. So she's, she's using verbs that throughout Scripture typically refer to sexual activity. Lying with someone. The, the Hebrew word for observe is yada, to, to know. Um, uncovering. All of those things in other passages of Scripture refer to sexual activity. And obviously, her concluding statement is extremely dubious. He will tell you what to do after you've done all of this. So, so I would challenge that she is going back to thinking about along her former Moabite type of lines. Uh, maybe she's thinking that, revert, that, that uh, Ruth is really at heart a Moabite. And I talked weeks ago about how the Moabites 
had been engaged in seducing God's people to immorality and to idolatry. So maybe Naomi's thinking, hey, there's probably still some of that in there we could work with. Um, either way, I think that there's some pragmatism here that the ends will justify the means. I mean, we're after a good thing, getting her married and, and getting a settled future for her. Um, so I do want to point out, even though I think this is, this is a, not a shining moment for Naomi, that change has happened with her, which is why she's even thinking about Ruth in the first place. But like all of us, change is a process, and it's slow, and it's fits and starts. Uh, I heard one person describe it as it's playing with a yo-yo going upstairs. So at any given point, it might be, you might be further down than you were before, but the overall trajectory, uh, you're moving in a good direction. And I think that's true with Naomi here. But there is a lot of places where we are tempted towards pragmatism to just do what works, make it work, and have the ends justify the means. Uh, so I want to ask you, where might you be tending to compromise as a Christian if you are in Christ this morning? Um, for some people, that can look like having sexual activity outside of marriage, whether you're single, lifelong single, or single again. I think it can look like cheating on our taxes, cutting corners, or maybe in the workplace using that expense account for personal things. And it's very easy for us to justify these, these types of behaviors. We can say things like, you know, we're going to get married anyway, eventually, or don't you know Uncle Sam takes too much? It's really not fair. It's okay for me to do this. Or, uh, you know, I work really, really hard for this company. I'm not compensated the way I should be. It is okay that some of the expense account is coming in my direction for my benefit. We can justify these things and be a little bit like Naomi here. Hey, the ends justify the means. Um, so another complication with whole, her whole scheme is how is Boaz going to respond to this? Right? Hosea 9.1 actually describes threshing floors as places where prostitutes went to, to ply their trade. So how is he going to interpret this? Is he going to be embarrassed? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to see it as she's moving towards me in an immoral way? Um, all the signs certainly point in that direction. And, and I just want to make perhaps an, an obvious point. Um, Everything that scripture describes is not what scripture prescribes for the life of God's people, right? Scripture is honest about history. It tells us things in history that are real, that happen, but it's not always saying, hey, this is normative behavior for you. You should go do this. Um, so you've got to understand the whole, the context and the direction. Um, but what we really see in the midst of a pretty dicey circumstance where Ruth is committed to both honoring the authority of her mother-in-law, but also her utter commitment to honor God, uh, is what we see in this passage. One final thought on the plan here, that there is nothing wrong with, with sweet perfume and, and merry hearts. Um, when Ruth is told to set aside her, her mourning garments, to clean herself, to put on perfume, that's okay. Christians are not called to shun beauty. Um, and just live kind of dour lives and look dowdy all the time. Um, 
the call is that there would be, whatever outward beauty is there would be, out, would be outstripped by inner grace. That however nice you look on the outside, that who you are on the inside is more significant. Um, but Christianity does not shun the blessings of the physical world. You know, Christianity rightly expressed rejoices in God's good gifts. And, and I actually think we have a great picture of that in this with Boaz, that he has finished working and he's feasted, and it said he laid down with a merry heart. Um, I would want to argue that he is laying down with a merry heart at the end of this huge heap of grain, giving thanks to God for his mercy and provision after 10 years of famine. And the reason why I would challenge you that, that God was on his heart, because he's the first thing off his lips once he wakes up. He's a man who clearly has a heart for God, um, and yet is rejoicing in, in the goodness of God and in his provision and in the blessings of, of life in this world. Uh, and so I just want to say this because for many people, if you're investing in the Christian faith, I think Christians can sometimes be stigmatized as, as not enjoying the pleasures of life. And that is completely false. God, God wants us living in his world, seeing him as a good creator and, and rejoicing in his gifts. Um, and so even people like 17th century English Puritan and theologian John Owen, um, they never did smile for portraits back then, but he was a prolific writer, theologian, uh, but he completely belied the Puritan caricature that we would still have even in today's culture. He was a snappy dresser for that time, apparently really into boots of Spanish leather, and he brewed excellent beer. <laughs> so he enjoyed life. Now, this is important, but, but this, is, this is the most significant thing, that the gifts of God would lead you to worship and praise of the giver of those gifts. So, so here's the caveat, because we are living in a culture that, that has a lot of blessings, right? Um, do the gifts that you have in your life lead you to deeper praise for who God is? Do, do they deepen your relationship with him, or do the gifts become ends in and of themselves? That's where we run into problems, when pleasures and gifts become ends in themselves instead of leading to deeper worship and something that draws you closer in relationship to who God is. So in chapter 1, Ruth vowed that she would serve Naomi. And even in this instance, with this harebrained scheme, she submits to, to the plan of her, her mother-in-law. In fact, verse 6 tells us she saw it as a command. She did all that her mother-in-law commanded. Um, and she carried out the plan exactly, except for the dubious conclusion. He'll tell you what to do. Instead, she takes courage in both hands and actually makes the proposal. Um, so I mentioned that the different times of day, now it's midnight. They're in darkness and kind of sense of fear, right? She breaks every cultural maxim possible for social interaction, let alone a marriage proposal. She's a younger person approaching an older person. She is a female approaching a male. She is a poor peasant widow approaching a wealthy landowner. She's breaking all of these social norms 
And essentially what she's saying is, cover me, kinsman, redeemer. So what, what does Ruth mean by this? Leviticus 25 describes the role of a kinsman redeemer. It says this, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. It was very important when, when the Israelites ended up in the promised land that the land that was apportioned to each family would stay with that family that the person's name would remain on that part of the land. And so if somebody became too indebted and they needed, to, they needed money, they had all these debtors, they would have to have, they would sell it, but then a family member was responsible to come and buy it back for that person. And in the same way, it wasn't just land. If, if you yourself as a person had to be sold into slavery because you became indebted, a family member was supposed to come and buy you back, buy your freedom for you. We talked uh, in week one at the beginning of, of uh, or week two, I guess it was, we talked about leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25. This was a specific provision that if a man died childless, his brother was supposed to marry his sister-in-law and produce an heir that the man's name would be kept alive in Israel and with that particular plot of land. And so what Ruth is doing here is basically saying to Boaz, hey, Boaz is under no legal obligation to marry this woman. He's a, he's a more distant relative. That was only a brother-in-law. But she's appealing to him, will you honor not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law? Will you redeem us? And so she asks him, if you see in verse 9, to spread his wings over her. It's the same language, actually, that we saw Boaz use last week where he said, you've come under God's wings. Essentially, what, what Ruth is saying is, will you become the physical presence of God in my life? Will you be his hands and feet? Will you join him in the actual care of me? And, and take care of me and Naomi. Um, and this is a significant break from Naomi's plan. Ruth is not going to just leave her actions up for interpretation. Um, she wants to make very clear what her intent is with Boaz. And so she puts it out there. Um, there is a bold candor in her love because she does not want any ambiguity. But what we see in that is that Ruth and Boaz are actually kindred spirits. That both of them have a devotion to God that is greater. That is what, the, what is the ruling principle in their lives. So think about Boaz here. He has eaten and drunk. His heart is merry. He's laying down in the middle of, at night. He's awakened in the middle of the night, probably out of a deep sleep, with the scent of perfume in the air, and there's a woman right here. And yet, his heart goes towards her. Um, he's not going to take advantage of the situation. The Hebrew there, where it says he was startled, um, has a connotation of fear. He's shocked. He's, he's, he's kind of abruptly awakened here. Um, but did you notice, the first thing off his lips is praise, not taking advantage of Ruth. So she appeals him to honor the spirit of the law. He is delighted to obey um, and to do that. 
Now, was, was there physical attraction between Ruth and Boaz? There probably was. I mean, his comment in verse 10 that you haven't gone after the younger men, whether poor or rich, probably indicates that she was an attractive woman that would have drawn suitors to herself. Um, but that's not the main draw for Boaz. It is the commitment that he has seen in her to Naomi because of her commitment to God. Now, stick with me here. Uh, in the beginning of, of chapter 2, Boaz is proclaimed to be a worthy man. And in our passage today, he says that she's a worthy woman. Now, this is important to understand the context for the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the, the Hebrew Scriptures are ordered differently than the Greek translation or our English translations. So what we've done with the Greek translation that, that, that has become what, what we use um, is it was reordered, kind of like the clever publisher who reordered the Chronicles of Narnia in chronological order, which I think should be fired for that. Um, the, the books of the historical books were reordered to chronological order. But in the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Ruth comes after the book of Proverbs. This is significant. If you know the book of Proverbs, the very last chapter in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, talks about an excellent wife, this woman of noble character. And the language used in the opening line of, of Proverbs 31, an a excellent wife who can find, is the very language that Boaz uses that's rendered here, worthy woman. It's as if Proverbs ends extolling, this is what an excellent wife looks like, this is what a worthy woman looks like, and then Ruth comes right behind it saying, let me give you a case study of what this actually looks like in the real world. Um, and so that ultimately, I would say, is what is drawing Boaz's heart to her. Um, they are kindred spirits, but it is more of a character match than a physical attraction. And I, I just want to say this. I know that there are some single here or single again. I just want to encourage you. This is the most important thing in seeking after a spouse. Somebody who has a passion for God and whose character goes deep. Um, what does that look like? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You obey him. Someone who, who reads his word, who talks to him, who has a relationship with him, um, who cares about being in community with other people. Being a part of a body matters. Um, someone who can receive correction. Someone who forgives readily and readily asks for forgiveness. And, and in all of this, I would say you're looking for someone who genuinely loves God way more than they love you. Because that means they're going to be able to love you when you're not very lovable. There needs to be a greater love that is driving the relationship and their heart for you. Uh, the bottom line is this, that a spiritual resonance with that other human being, being kindred spirits, um, and genuine friendship, and having God be, as it says in Malachi, the third strand that binds together that relationship, is what keeps a marriage healthy and strong long after beauty fades. Um, so, 
They're kindred spirits. Ruth's proposal then is eagerly accepted, but like much of life, it's not that simple. And so first, you need to see that, that Boaz is clearly delighted in this. He blesses her and he says this last demonstration of hesed is, is greater than the first. He's saying that what you've done in securing redemption for your family is more significant than when you clung to Naomi in the first place and left Moab to come here. Um, it's as if Ruth is on the threshing floor meeting Boaz for Elimelech and Machlon. Just as it said that the Lord, uh, in the last chapter, Naomi said, the Lord doesn't forsake the living or the dead. Um, she's come to make things right for the whole family. And so he sees her candor as a demonstration of that Hesed love. He looks past whatever kind of questionable thing could have come about by Naomi's plan, and he blesses her for choosing him instead of running after other people. There's even, I would say, a little echo in Boaz's response of, of Adam's delight when he first saw Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you are the one I've been looking for all these years. And so, he is delighted. Now, there is a problem. There's a closer relative than him who has first dibs on the property and on Ruth. But he assures her, don't worry, you're going to get redeemed today no matter what. It's either going to be him or it's going to be me. Um, and, and notice his care. I'm going to have this conversation for you. You don't need to put yourself out there again. You don't need to track him down and say, hey, would you be willing? What do you think of this? I will take care of everything to make sure that this comes to pass. Um, really, as we saw last week from their very first encounter, the desire of his heart has been to cover a vulnerable person who needed care and love and protection. And so he's doing it again. Um, and you can see his deep affection. In fact, the, the Hebrew in verse 13 is significant. A more literal translation would be like this. If he redeems you good, let him redeem. If he does not delight to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. If he does not delight. Um, because Boaz is delighting in her and only wants a redeemer that is similarly worthy. Um, so he tells her to go to sleep until morning. And then it's early morning. It's it's. New beginning. And there is this abundant provision that's given. So he gives her more grain, like we saw at the end of, of last week. He gives her grain so that she is almost full. Now, now, why do I say almost full? Six is an imperfect number in Scripture. It's one short of seven. Seven is a perfect number. So uh, in saying that, I'm not saying Boaz is being stingy. Uh, we don't actually know how much because there's no measurement given but his intent, as he clearly said in, in verse 17, is that Naomi would not go back empty-handed to her mother-in-law. So six is incomplete. It's one short of seven. And the, the imagery here is, is really poignant. Uh, I have to give, give a shout-out to my Old Testament professor, Doug Green, who, who pointed this out when I was translating Ruth in seminary. He said, it's like this. Ruth is holding out, hold out your cloak, he fills it with grain. She 
holds it like this. She walks back to Bethlehem holding her cloak full of grain. It's a foreshadowing. This is what is coming. You will be filled. Um, You are almost there. And you can trust that he's going to continue the work that he's begun. Um, Then she's greeted by her anxious mother-in-law, who's probably been up all night. And in the Hebrew, Naomi asks, Who are you, my daughter? She's asking actually the exact same question that Boaz asked when he woke up in the middle of the night. Who are you? She's saying, has your status changed? Is there another name on you? Um, And then, of course, as she recounts the delighted, uh, Boaz's delighted response to the proposal, she rightly says, he's going to take care of this today. And if you look at at, uh, the beginning of chapter 4, where we'll go next week, He's already gone to the city gate. He's already there when they're having this conversation waiting for for the Redeemer to show up. Um, Boaz is going to, or Ruth is going to be redeemed. The family is saved. Um, But let me me end like this. Just as there's a Redeemer closer than Boaz in the story, Boaz is pointing us to another Redeemer that is closer This whole practice in ancient Israel was looking forward to the great Redeemer that was coming. God has been behind the scenes with all of this. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, orchestrating all these different events. And he's going to come right to the fore next week in in his actions in this. Um, But God has always been a Redeemer husband for his people. Listen to this passage from Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness using the same language that Boaz uses, or Ruth uses rather. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. The amazing thing, if you know Ezekiel 16, is that it's actually a rebuke for how unfaithful the people are. But God is saying, this is my heart for you. I see you naked. I want to cover you and protect you. Just like Adam looked at in the the call to worship this morning, he clothes us with robes of righteousness. He wants us decked out like a bride. And that's where actually human history is heading And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus becomes the personification of this bridegroom language. New Testament makes clear this is the bridegroom that has been coming. He's repeatedly referred to as the Redeemer who who doesn't buy back land but does free us from slavery. Slavery to sin and death. And does it at the cost of his own life. He does it by laying down his life for us, to buy us back. First Peter puts it like this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. His life was the bride price, and he was delighted to pay it, because he loves you and pursues you. 
he's a faithful husband despite all the wandering that we do. And, and some of you, I mean, especially if you are here investing in the Christian faith, a lot of people avoid church because they don't like to hear about sin. They don't want to feel guilty about stuff going on in their lives. But the reality is God is direct with us because he loves us. He's direct with us because he cares about our lives and he wants us to be the men and women he created us to be. But Jesus redeemed, Jesus went to the cross and paid with his precious blood so that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of things churn inside your heart, he's saying, I will cover you. I have already covered your sin at the cross, and I am delighted now to cover you and to take you, to make you mine, no matter who you are and what you've done. Boaz's eagerness to marry Ruth is a tiny picture. It is a drop in the Pacific Ocean of God's heart for you. In fact, I want to challenge you that God created us as romantic beings so that ultimately we would understand his heart, his desire, his longing, his delight in us. Uh, this is a verse that, that has been significant for me in my life. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Listen to this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He created us romantic beings so that we would understand his heart, his longing, his desire, his delight for you. He went to the cross in profound sacrificial love, left everything behind, Jesus did, to come to this earth and lay down his life to secure you and a relationship with you forever. The only sane response to this kind of sacrificial Hesed love is to say, cover me, kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We, we can't hardly get our minds around the reality of your love. So we're asking for more of your spirit, that we would be able to do it more and more, that we would see you show us ourselves, only that we would see more clearly who you are and who you invite us to be. We thank you for your commitment to complete the work that you've begun. In Christ's name, amen.